Our scriptural text for Mark's teaching this morning is found in Isaiah 27, verses 1 through 13. In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment. So that no one will damage it, I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore their Maker will not have compassion on them, and their Creator will not be gracious to them. In that day the Lord will start His threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Thanks, Kevin and Yvette for preparing us. I hope you folks are not tired of hearing about the wrath of God in the book of Isaiah because here we go again. You know, Jackson and Rod, uh, I've been a little bit worried about you folks wanting to take them out and stoning them because they've been on this subject for so long. Uh, but they decided to have me come up here to take some of the blows. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little older, so I'm more disposable. <laughs> Reading through the book of Isaiah is like experiencing the fears and the fun of a good roller coaster ride. Because he keeps talking about the wrath of God on the nations and his anger and judgment even upon his own people, the Israelites. But he also talks about the glory that we experience with him and will experience in the future. And Isaiah 27 begins with the words, in that day, which is that little period of time at the end. And he says something really big is going to happen, which is what we're going to cover. And we all love the big things in our life. We love to look forward to those big things. Like when I get married someday, uh, when I have my first child, looking forward to that. When we take our vacation to Disney World, or a little closer, Disneyland. When we graduate from high school, now there's a big day. When we pay off the mortgage, amen, another big day. Well, one of the biggest days that I experienced was when I was in Vietnam for a year. And the only day I cared about, ultimately, was the day that I went home a year later. Had somebody else take my place. And so on that wonderful day, we all went down to the airport. Out, everything, ter terminal, everything was outside. And that, that DC-8 flew in and a 240 soldiers came off to take our place. And we went out and we walked up that ladder into that airplane. I went to the right. 
and sat back there somewhere toward the end, and, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and the plane was not going. Oh, come on, plane, go, we were all thinking. We can't sit out here like this. Finally, it started to move, and, and we'd go over those little uh, dividers in the concrete, plump, plump. Did they really pump up these tires? Are we going to have a flat tire? Are we not leaving today? And as we went down a little bit further, it's still halfway down the runway. We were still moving slow. And we realized that there are 200 tons of metal and, uh, and, and men on that airplane. Was, could it possibly gain enough lift? He needed to speed up. And we knew that the jungle was right ahead at the end of the airfield. If we landed in that jungle, we'd all be dead. My dad told me, when you get into one of those airplanes, he says, sit in the back. He says, that's the safest place if you crash. So there I was in the back. I felt I was in a pretty safe place. And then still we weren't going very fast. We picked up a little bit of speed. And some of us actually lifted up our feet off the floor to lighten the load a little bit. (laughs) And uh, finally got to the end of the runway. And we we crashed in the jungle and I died. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding you. (laughs) But we look forward to those great events. Going home. And when the uh, disciples were with Jesus Christ on that last night before he was crucified, he said, I I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. That where I am, you will be also. That's the biggest day we will ever experience when we go to be with him. And he wants us to keep that in mind and to keep looking forward to that day. Because when we do, it makes our living today that much more rich and wealthy. So, we're going to look forward to what he says here in 27. Let's pray. Father, as we go about uh, managing the exciting ups in our life, which are wonderful, and those discouraging downs, which hurt, and then sometimes just the general boredom of life, You still stretch out your arm and you point to the past, how your son saved us on the cross when we accepted him as our Savior. And you also point forward to that time and that firm hope that we have that we are going to be with you in the end, worshiping you. And then that that gives us that stability to look back and look forward and live for you right now for what you've done and what you're going to do. And so we, we ask that you really energize us from what's here in Isaiah 27, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a mixture of of poetry and praise, and that's one of the reasons much of Isaiah, because most of it is in poetry, it it is somewhat difficult uh, to understand. But in verses 1 and in the first part of verse 12, it speaks of uh, God's, God's plan for the nations. Because he, what, what, uh, Isaiah is doing here is he's summarizing what Rod's been telling us from chapters 24 through 26. And at the beginning of 24, he says that his wrath is going to come. He says that he's going to lay the earth waste. And, and then when we get to the last verse, if you remember, if you were here last week, that Rod was talking about the peace that we can have with God. It's a song of peace through much of this for, the, for, for Israel. But then he gets right to the end and he goes, For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And so he's talking about laying the earth waste as he moves on into, into, into 27. And he's going to take care of the nations first. He has a plan. And he refers to two leviathons and one dragon. And he uses them as a symbol of God's judgment upon the earth. And he takes through these symbols the nations that have held Israel in captivity. We look at them real briefly here. We've got the fleeting serpent. And the serpent has the idea of a river. And it's speaking of the river that goes down through the middle of Iraq, the Tigris River. On the Tigris River is is, is Nineveh, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in around 7, a little before 700 uh, B.C. and took the northern tribe of Israel into captivity. And then there's the twisted serpent, serpent, which refers to the other river, which is west uh, in Iraq. And that's kind of a a windy river, like our Snake River. 
It's the twisted serpent. It comes down to Babylon, who is the capital of the Babylonians, who took the Israelites into captivity 600 years before Christ. And then with the support of verse 12, when he talks about the brook of Egypt, uh, he's going to kill that dragon. And that's with reference to the Nile River and, of course, Egypt. Those three nations held Israel captive, and so he's using them symbolically to talk about the whole world in the end of time when he judges the, the earth. Our God is a holy God. We sing about that all the time. And when we think of a holy God, we have to remember he has two arms. He is a God of wrath because he cannot accept sin, so he has to judge it. But he's also a God of love, and of course he took care of that sin for us through Jesus Christ, for those of us who believe. But he is still a God of wrath. Uh, he, he judged uh, the world when, in, in Noah's time. He judged uh, Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And there's a good pile of salt down in the Dead Sea, in the south end of the Dead Sea, to remind us of that. And remember John the Baptist when he was down on the Jordan, and all those people came and they repented and they were baptized, uh, looking forward someday for the Messiah. They had repented of their sins. But then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and, and he could read their hearts. He knew why they came. He says, you brood of vipers, they were afraid of the wrath of God. That's why they came. When we think of Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, nine times in his words, he said that he had come for a particular reason. Nine different reasons. We usually think of the reason, well, he came to die for sinners which is the big one. But he also says in Luke chapter 12, I have come to cast fire upon this earth, and, and I can't wait until it's kindled. Remember, he was in the midst of the Israelites rejecting him, except for a few. He saw all that hate for him as they hated his son. And then when the apostle John is faced with Jesus Christ in front of him, and the expresses in the first part of the book of Revelation, he falls on his face because he sees fires in the, fire in the eyes of the Lamb of God. And then you see in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God's wrath comes at certain points. So our God is a God of wrath. He is going to judge those who reject him. And specifically in the last days, the destruction that he's going to... Uh, uh, level on this earth. He's also a God who has a plan for his people. And we read in verses 2 through 11, and then down in the last part of 12 and 13, we read about that plan. And I, I've broken up in two pieces, but before we get to that, we have to think a moment about what it means to be God's people. Because it depends on what context in the scripture you're in as to what he means by that. And of course, the big one right at the beginning is the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But then he, he zeroes in a little bit more on who really are his people in certain contexts. Like he says in Isaiah 10:27, that was referred to in an earlier message, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, yet it is the remnant who will be saved. The few within the whole nation of Israel, those are the ones that are going to be saved. Now, we move over to the New Testament. In the New Testament, it says, of course, Jesus has come, the Spirit's come, now we have the believers in the church, and he says, in, in Romans chapter 2, the end of Romans chapter 2, a true Jew is one who has a circumcised heart. Is something that goes on on the inside. And the Jews in the, in the church at that time who had become believers, they're looking, what? Yeah, Gentiles and Jews. It's, it's, you're an individual, and if, if your heart has been circumcised, then you are one who is really blessed by God, which is what the idea of, of, of uh, uh, the word uh, Jews. The Jew is, is one who is blessed of God. So it's the true Jew, the one who has the circumcised heart. Then you get to chapter, chapter 9, and it says, they are not all Israel who are descendants of Israel. They are not all Israel who are children of Abraham. Well then, who is the true Israel? He says, it's the children of the promise. 
It's those people who have that same heart that Abraham had when he believed in God, firmly believed in God. And, 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 and of course, when we believe, we receive, he gives us, he baptizes us with his Holy Spirit. And uh, at that point, we know that we belong to God. So, for his children, before Christ, the true believer was one who had a faith of Abraham. After Christ, the one who, the one who trusted in Jesus Christ became a true child of God. Truly, his people. So, in the first part of uh, verse 2 and into verse 6, he has a plan for his people. And that is to protect his people. And as Kevin read, God says, I water it moment by moment. My vineyard, those are my people. I water that vineyard moment by moment. I protect it day and night. I don't get any sleep. If somebody wants to come along and give me uh, 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 briars and thistles to mess up my vineyard, I will stamp on them. I will burn them. But nobody's going to touch my people. And then, and then he says, if you rely upon my protection, that's what you need to do. If you have plans to damage my people, no, rely on my protection. He says, make peace with me. And he says it twice. Make peace with me. He says, in, in, in those days, in verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Well, Jacob and Israel did take root and blossom and sprout through Jesus Christ. And, and you get into John chapter 15 that night again before Jesus was crucified. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. What are we supposed to do? Connect to the vine. Take the energy from the vine. Yeah, but what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to produce fruit. And he says that three times in the, in the uh, book of John chapter 15. You're fruit producers. And that's what builds God's vineyard. All of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, we're part of that, that fruit. And, and so when we're out there sharing by our lives and our words, as, as who, and who and wherever we are, uh, God wants to use us. Sometimes it's just simply loving people, not necessarily always seeing somebody come to, to Christ, but it grows. And then people like you have done recognize the mercy of God because you're a sinner, and you've accepted the grace of God, the free gift of grace, and you become a part of that vineyard. And his protective arms come around, and they hold you, and he doesn't let us go. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not, not the past, not the, not the future, uh, not life, not death. Nothing's going to separate us. And some people will say, well, wait a minute. You're right. But, but if I decide to leave, I'll just leave him because I don't want to follow him anymore. You can't do that if you are a genuine Christian because you've had a circumcised heart. It's been cut. It's been placed in focusing on God. You can't do that. It's just like we become children of God. We don't all of a sudden uh, say, God, I'm upset. Yeah, but you're still my adopted son, and I'm going to take care of you. We are sealed, it says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, 30. We are sealed until the day of redemption. Put the seal on there. Nobody messes with that seal. Until our bodies are redeemed and he comes back and he, and he, and he reveals us later on. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a little demonstration here. Because one of my favorite passages in Scripture deals with this subject of God's protection and his care for us. And so what I have here is a big blue bucket and that represents God. My blue shirt has nothing to do with it. And then you have the yellow one here is Jesus Christ. And then we have the little one here. And uh, let's see, uh, this is Raleigh. And everybody else who believes, okay? He, and he says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he says, if you have been raised up with Christ then keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. But we don't get raised up until we die first. So he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So, Raleigh, I'm going to pick on Raleigh. You're a good buddy. Raleigh, you're dead. Okay. Marsha, does he look dead? Sometimes. But, but you're dead in the fact that when you accepted Christ, Raleigh went on that cross. He was crucified with Christ. He died with Christ. He was buried with Christ. He was raised with Christ. And he's seated at the right hand with Jesus Christ. That's the picture of that death. And then he says, he says, then when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. We are in Christ. And Christ is in God. And we say, well, what do we mean by being in? Think of Jesus being in God, which it says. If Jesus is in God, that means he's protected by God. He's hidden in God. He's one with God. He's secure. Not social security, but spiritual security for eternity. And so if we are in Jesus, there's no way we can get out of there. But when Jesus is revealed, which I mentioned earlier, uh, in that day of, in that day when he comes back, he is going to be revealed to the world and glorified. Now, before, when we were hidden in Christ, you say, well, who are we hidden from? We're hidden from the world. When you folks, especially when you got older, if you became Christ a little bit older in life, and, and, uh, you became a believer, your life changed, and what did people think about you? You got religion, baby! You are a religious person. No, I got Jesus Christ is what happened. They don't understand that. They don't realize that we are hidden in Christ. To them, it's, they just got religion. Now, when we, when we jump back into, uh, John chapter 14 again, back in the days when Jesus was with his disciples that last evening before he was crucified, uh, he told them that he was going to be sending them the comforter. And they would know when the Comforter came, which Pentecost they received, the uh, God gave them the Holy Spirit, he'd been raised. And the same with us, when we believe, God, it says God baptizes us. He's the one that gives us the Holy Spirit when we believe. And he said, when that happened, he says, when that happens, then you will know that I am in the Father. And you are in me. Raleigh, see where you went? Raleigh. Then he says, and I... Jesus, I mean you. Okay. What do you mean? I'm in God. I'm hidden in God, in Christ, in God. Uh, and now he's saying Jesus is, is in me. What does he mean, Jesus is in me? Let's put, well, I had something that fits a little bit better, you know, yellow here compared. It'll fit better. And then we also know that when we believe, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's in here too. You crowded, right? Then, Jesus says in verse 23 in chapter 14 again, He says, And the Father and I will make our living, our, will make our abode with you. Okay. Now we got a crowded group here inside of all true believers. Now really that, we can't understand all that. All we know is that God has given us His Holy Spirit, which is in direct in tune with Jesus, direct in tune with God. And so now go back. We're talking about God's protection. He's got us all this in total protection. We're hidden in here until he, re, until he comes back and he shows himself off and he shows us off to the whole world. But in the meantime, he wants us over here. We're hidden over here, but he wants us to reveal Jesus Christ. And that's why he's inside of us. You know what that makes us? Not only are we Trinitarians... We are quadratarians. You will find that in the theology books. But there's four of us involved now in this life. There's us and God trying to work through us. And he won't leave us. Well, can't I just go my own way? No, he's inside. Not only are we inside of him, and he's inside of us. Okay, that's enough of that. You've got, you got the idea. You probably already knew all that. But I wanted to tell you anyway. So now he's going to go on in the passage, and he's going to talk about uh, uh, the nation of Israel... And the principle that we can take out of that, because what he's going to do, what he says here, this is, a, this is a complicated section of scripture right in here, and Kevin was talking to me about it before, and he says, my goodness, some of you folks are in your Bible studies, in your home, and you're saying, well, this is complicated, I'm sure you struggled with this passage, but I want to kind of summarize what's going on here, as I understand it. 
He, 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 he focuses in on Judah, or the southern kingdom, which he talks about in chapter 26 in the first verse. It's Judah, the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom has already been told that they're, they're going into captivity uh, by, because of the uh, Assyrians. And he says, I'm going to banish you. I'm going to banish my people in Judah. He's, I'm going to send in the east wind. And that... Um, Poetically, he's referring to the Babylonians that are going to come in and take take them away. And and he says, well, well, why? It's because they're worshiping idols. They've been worshiping idols forever. They've totally rejected their God. And when you get into verse 11, he says, I have no compassion on you anymore. I'm not going to extend any grace to you. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, God isn't going to have compassion or grace to to the Israelites, uh, even though they have sinned. You know, we've got to realize that God, like us, we're made in his image, we're very emotional beings. God is an emotional God. Now, Isaiah lived some 700 years before Christ. Jeremiah lived some 600 years before Christ. Jeremiah lived at that time the Babylonians came in. And God said to Jeremiah in chapter 4, he says, My people do not know me. They are stupid children. Uh, Josh, I think, used that word recently. Maybe Jackson did, but he uses that. They're stupid. They're, they're ignoring their God. And then later on in Jeremiah, he says, I don't even want you to pray for these people because they're going to Babylon. It's time. But then he throws a little curve at us, and that's where that complicated verse is in verse 7. He says, like the striking of him who has struck them, he has struck them. Or who, he, he has struck them, question. Or like the slaughter of the slain, they have been slain? Two questions. Well, here, this is how I understand this. When these nations, the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in, and they took the Israelites into two separate captivities, they came with an unexpressible brutality of the people. No mercy, and they were never going to change. They were brutal to God's people. But God, even though he gets very upset with his people, not not born-again Christians in this state, not those who have a heart for him, but the nation who had turned away from him, he, he still wants them to come back to him. And so he says in verse 9, Therefore, through this, now, what does he mean through this? He'll, he'll tell us. Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pul- pulverized chalk stones. When Ashram, the female deities, and the incense altars will not stand. In other words, he says... I want you to get serious here. You're worshiping the idols, not me. And when you get to that point where you're going to stop worshiping your world and you worship me, then and then that's when you say, I want peace with you, God. I want to be a part of your vineyard. And that happened to be the idea of repentance. We need to change our minds if we're unbelievers. When my wife and I, in our earlier years, after my Bible training, we went down to Arizona and we worked in a church down there. And we lived out in the sticks. And there, were, I mean, it was sticks, five, six miles outside of Prescott, Arizona. And we met a guy and his wife. He was in his mid-60s. And they were Christians. And so we went over and we talked with them. And he told me his story. He said when he was a child growing up, he said, my dad was a well-known pastor in Los Angeles had a big church. And he says, I didn't know my dad. My dad didn't give me any time. And so I hated him. And so when I was 15, I left home. It was back in the 20s. I went to Washington and I worked in the forest. And then a year and a half or so, he says, I came back and I decided I'd go to Biola Bible College. Maybe I can, maybe I can please my dad. Maybe I can get some attention that way. And so he took the courses. He, he, he did really well. And so they made him a teacher when he graduated. And he taught evangelism and missions. His best friend was Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigator Movement that many of you are very much aware of. And he said, but I didn't know the Lord. 
I had never given the Lord my life. All I was doing there was trying to make connection with my dad. And maybe something would happen. Well, it didn't take long before he left that ministry. He went out and he became uh, a businessman and he made a lot of money and he moved to Prescott, Arizona. He had a house out in the sticks where we were. And he began to tell me his story. He said, after about 25, 26, 27 years, nothing to do with God because he wasn't a believer. And he said, I read in the paper where a singing group was coming from Los Angeles to sing in the Baptist church in Prescott. And he says, so you know, a little nostalgia kicked in. I, gotta, I think I'll go and uh, listen to their music, the old hymns. And in one of those old hymns, chapter 4, or chapter 2, verse 4 of the book of Revelations was in the reading, in the music, in the song. And it says in, in that section, God is talking to those people who consider themselves pretty righteous and how they tend to judge those that aren't so righteous. And he says, you're just as guilty as they are. You do the same things. Don't you realize that you also are under the wrath of God? And he says, do you, do you think lightly of the, of the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that his kindness leads you to repentance, a change of mind. And when, when he heard that, the Holy Spirit took out a sharp little spiritual knife, went into his heart and circumcised it. And the tears just flowed down his face. And he told me, Mark, ever since that's happened, and this was about two years into him becoming a believer, he says, for the first year and a half of that event, he said, I'd wake up at 4, 4.30 in the morning, I'd come in and sit in my lounge chair, turn on the lamp and just read scripture, and all I did was weep. He had so much remorse. He wasted his life. He destroyed two marriages. He was in the process of destroying his third marriage in his mid-60s, and he damaged the two children he had. And he was in tremendous remorse. You know, I wonder how many of you are here? How many men are here because your wife brought you, but you don't know the Lord, you've never repented? And how many of you women are here because your husband has brought you, but you have never had a circumcised heart, never repented? How many of you are here because your parents brought you and you've never made that decision? And, and how many of you are here just because you like to be around Christians? Because they're nice people. I've met a lot of people in the church I've been in the past. Don't know the Lord, but they like being around nice people. If you're here and God is circumcising your heart or trying to circumcise your heart, and he's just about got it, hey, I'm not going to do just as I am. We're not going to have an invitation. I'll tell you what I want you to do. If God is doing that to the few of you who might be here, and He keeps do- and you don't, you're not saying anything right now to, to the Lord, but, but, but you're going to go out to your car and you're driving home after church and going out to eat or whatever, and, 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 and you can feel that, you can feel something's happening. And you go to bed at night and you can't sleep because God's talking to you. And you get up in the morning and you drive to work and have lunch and, and you come back and you're still, if God is trying to circumcise your heart, says, Lord, take me. And when, when you do that, you go find Jackson, you go find Rod, uh, you go find Josh, or, or you find somebody in this church that likes to get wet, and then go right on, we'll go right over here and baptize you. And you can share, share it with the whole congregation, and we will stand up and rejoice with you. You know, it says in the book of Revelation that you just can't wait forever. The book of Revelation in chapter 9 and chapter 16 says that nobody repents. He does that four times during that nasty period in life, which I don't think we'll be there. We could. It could happen to us. You know, while the world's going, it might be our children, our grandchildren. But nobody, it's too late if they say nobody repents. And that's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. So if it's in there, uh, and, and, and when that happens, you get embraced by God. You are hidden in Christ, in God. And he'll never let you go because he's inside of you too. 
Okay, so he has a plan for our protection. This last little bit here, though, he also has a plan for our destiny. Look at the end of verse, uh, the middle of verse 12 through 13 to close this off. After he's talking about the Euphrates, the, the brook of, of, of Egypt and so forth, he says, And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and those who were scattered in the land of Egypt uh, will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. So what he's saying is, there's going to be a great trumpet, there's going to be a gathering. Uh, He has a destiny for all of us who know him to worship him in Jerusalem. There's there's different views on that. It could be, as some say, the the new Jerusalem. Or for some, it could be the uh, Jerusalem on this earth for a thousand years, and then the new Jerusalem. But it doesn't make any difference in the end. Because when we are there, when God gathered the dead and the living, when God has us all come and be in His, in His presence to worship Him, we're not going to be saying, well, I had it right. I figured it out <laughs> in my understanding of prophecy. Because there's so many different views. The hows and the timing of that gathering up of God's people to worship Him, they're debatable. I like what, uh, Chuck Swindoll says with his humor, uh, because we're talking about, first of all, either a new Jerusalem we move right into, or we move into uh, a heaven on earth for a thousand years. And then in that group, we've got the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib positions. And, 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 and Chuck said, uh, some of us pre-tribbers get get so dogmatically emotional about our position that we won't even eat post-toasties. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like Chuck? In other words, uh, kind of lighten up these things. I mean, when I was a, a young uh, a Christian and doing my schooling and all, I was taught one particular position, and I, I just, it was, it was wonderful. But I found some verses that I, well, wait a minute. That doesn't fit, in my opinion. It, then what does it mean? Well, it means this. Well, it does. And, and, I, and I found several passages. It doesn't fit. And so I got a book on, on another position, and I read that. The same thing. I was reading through it. This is great. Scripture is really supporting this position. And then all of a sudden, they're doing the same thing. They're taking stuff that doesn't, from what I can tell, in the common sense in the, in the past, doesn't fit. Now, whether I was right or wrong, that's beside the point. The point is, I didn't see things fitting. So I said, okay, I'm not going to read all these different positions and then decide which one I like. I'm just going to spend the rest of my life enjoying studying the book of Revelation, enjoying the study in the Gospels of the future events in the Old Testament and Daniel and Isaiah and all these passages. I'm just going to wait and not be too eager to get it right down perfect. And about, that was for 45 years I was doing that. And about 15 years ago, I started to feel comfortable in one position. But I also learned during that study of all these different positions to to the degree that I studied them, that they all had really good biblical support to various degrees to support their position. And uh, all of them. But they also did not include the passages that argued against their position. And they also took out their, their dull pocket knife and they carved down all the square pegs of Scripture to fit in. And I was doing it too. Whatever position I was kind of moving toward, I was trying to plug things in. You know, I, uh, I really appreciate uh, there's four women in, in the church that I know that meet every once a week here at the church. And they were studying the book of Revelation, and they studied it for uh, three years. And, and they had several of us come in to talk through our position from Scripture as to why we held to that. And so here about uh, a month ago, I went, hey, when did you, oh, we ended that about a year ago. For three years they studied it. I said, well, what was your conclusion? I said, oh, we, there were so many good arguments in every position, we didn't know what to believe. And I'm sure they all kind of moved a little bit one way or the other, but they were, they were confused by it. May their numbers increase. <laughs> Uh, there, there's a real wise man that said, and it can apply to any subject, but especially on this subject. He said, to discover truth, you must first agree 
that you don't know what you think you know. Isn't that great? Because we're the type that once we settle in on something, that's it. Because if, if my pastor tells me something, I agree with it. If the, the theological professor tells me his position, I believe it. Well, you know, especially the first, first person that talks about the last days. Or if I see that guy on TV and he's all saying everything, I, I'll believe it. And, or I pick up this book and wow, it's written here. I can go back and, and it's all together. And so that's the position I'm going to hold. That's the way we tend to be and we like to hold on to it because, oh my goodness, I can't, it's too hard to study all this stuff. <laughs> there's, there's a, uh, a time in high school, most of you uh, probably experienced this, where the English teacher, in my case it was an English teacher, uh, said he put a drawing, it was black ink, and it was on white, and it was up on the screen. And then he says, okay, now I want people on, the, all of you to drop your head. And on the left side of the class, I want you to raise up, and I'm going to tell you what, what this, this drawing is. And so he writes on the blackboard. Remember blackboards? Uh, he writes on the blackboard, old lady. And then he has that left side. Okay, now you bow your head, the, the right side. Now lift your head. And, and he writes on the board, young woman. And then he has them all put their head down. He erases everything. And he says, okay, every all heads up. How many of you see an old lady? Everybody on the left side. How many of you see a young woman? Everybody on the right side. They were programmed to think a certain way. I, one of my, one of my best professors in my early years of studying scripture. His name was Gary Statz. He was one of these guys that just knew the languages. He was only 32 as a young teacher at Multnomah School of the Bible. And he didn't use an English Bible. When he, when he taught from the New Testament, he had his Greek text. He just translated it right there. And then when he, when he read from the, in the, the Old Testament, he just had picked up his Hebrew Bible and read it. He's one of those kind of guys. I hate those kind of people. You know, I have to read the English. But anyway, the one thing he said is very impressive that's always stuck with me. And that is, at this point in my study, whatever subject it was, if it wasn't nice and clear, especially like prophecy, he said, at this point, this is what I believe. Now, I could change my mind in the future. I've got a lot of time left in my life to study this subject because it's so complicated. But at this time in my study, I, oh, what a humble man. And, and I, I haven't always been that humble. <laughs> but but uh, he, he really set that in me to think, huh, we need to view lightly the position we take on the last days. But we also need to study it and enjoy it. God, it says in Hebrews, boy, are you blessed when you get into here because you see where you're headed. That's the point. And it's fun to study it. It's fun to go back to Daniel and get totally confused. Uh, anyway, what uh, impresses me, though, to kind of put the, the lid on, on this whole issue was in Daniel chapter 12. And, and I'm sure you know that in Daniel, he had so many visions. And he had all these numbers that he had to deal with. And you get to chapter 12 right toward the end. And he goes, uh, Lord... <clears throat> I'm having a hard time understanding some of this. Could you just tell me what's right there at the end? What's going to happen? Come on, just right there at the end. And God looks at him and goes, are you kidding me? I'm not going to tell you. He says, that's all sealed up for that period of time. They'll know when they get there exactly what's going on. But you don't need to know that. And he says, and then right after that, he gives him these two huge numbers that don't, they, they confuse the other numbers a little bit. And so we're out there. I'm, I'm trying to figure him out. How do they fit in? That's fun. But, he, but it's still a little, it's, it's on the confusion side. <laughs> and then he said, okay, you're, you go on your way. You're going to die and you're going to get your rest. And then I'm going to raise you up and you'll have your reward. Bye, Daniel. <laughs> the secret things belong to the Lord, and uh, scripture says. And that which is revealed is belong to us. So the emphasis for us is to really focus on that which is revealed. So what, I, what do I know that's revealed here as we finish this off? He says there's going to be a great trumpet. He's going to gather his people. Let me read, let me read some of these uh, verses that talk about the trumpet and the gathering to kind of stimulate you a little bit here. Matthew 24, 31. Immediately after the great tribulation, with a, uh, with a, great, a great trumpet will sound, and he will gather his elect from the four winds. 1 Thessalonians 4:16. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and with the trumpet of God, 
And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the dead to meet the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.52 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And then in the book of Revelation, the seventh angel, when he sounds, not the first six angels, but the seventh seventh angel, he says, then the mystery of God is finished. And he talks about the time of his wrath and his reign is to come. And then he keeps on going into verse 11, chapter 11, verse 15 in Revelation. And he says, the seventh angel sounded. It was the seventh trumpet. And he came and reigned and extended his, his wrath to the world. There's going to be a great trumpet. I believe it's going to really sound. I don't think it's going to be some little, some little toot. We're going to hear it. The whole world's going to hear it. And he's going to gather us and worship in the, in the Jerusalem that he has chosen. You know, a lot of you have been to the city of Jerusalem. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? The city of Jerusalem? My goodness. In the first service, is about that many too. And uh, when I've talked to those people in the past individually, I, I get this message from them. What did they get from it? Well, of course, a lot of historical stuff. But there is a, an undescribable feeling having been in the presence of where Jesus was in a lot of biblical history, a real third dimension will you be of experience that they cannot explain. They can show pictures, but they can't explain it. And there's a dramatic thing that happens to them. But guess what? They had to pay thousands of dollars to get over there. They had to to go over through through the the, uh, uh, body and baggage inspections they had to sit in a stuffy terminal. They had to eat terminal food. And then they got onto this, this aluminum, aluminum circular body thing. And, and, and they, and they packed them in like elbow to, or shoulder to shoulder, like hot dogs wrapped in plastic. And then they sent them up to 40,000 feet. And they looked down and they saw this dark, deep, black, dangerous, painfully scary Atlantic Ocean that they were flying over. And they didn't have much to do in that long flight but to look at the survival card in the seat, the pocket in the seat in front of them. But the rest of us, and they get to come along too. They just got the advanced view of that particular uh, Jerusalem setting. Uh, The rest of us, we get the flea ride. They they can come with us though. Uh, It'll be kind of like, uh, we won't be on a, a metal cil- in a metal, metal, jammed into a metal cylinder. We will be uh, like, like Superman. Up, up and away. And then down, down to stay. And, and we won't bring our iPhones. We won't bring our cameras because we're not going coming back to Boise. We're there to worship our God. We will worship Him like we were intended to worship Him. Uh, we won't... Man will not worship the works of his own hands anymore. He will not worship the movie stars and the rock stars and the and the uh, sports stars anymore. He will not worship uh, uh, the, the man-made heroes. He will not worship even God's creation. We will be worshiping our Creator together. Uh, we will be high, but not on drugs. We will be high on being in the very presence of our God. That's our destiny. And God wants us to look forward to our destiny on the mountain of his choice. However our understanding of the last days are, and keep studying them, they're, they're enjoyable. Uh, we are going to worship him. Now, what I want to do to end this is <laughs> I, I put together a, a 45-second little shot of music. Um, and we're going to have a, a visual up here, too, of an artist's rendition. And, yeah, it's, it's not even close, but artist's rendition of kind of a, a feeling of what it, it might be like. It's probably maybe like a little finger or a, a, a gnat in size to this building as to what it's really going to be like when we go and we stand before the Lord and worship Him all together. Millions of us. But I wanted to give you just a little flavor and in the last service, we didn't have the volume high enough. This is trumpets and drums, a few other little things. Uh, when I was, 
When I was uh, graduated from high school, I wanted to go to uh, play baseball in junior college, but they told me I had to take classes. <laughs> and so I had to, I went to the registrar's office and I paid uh, twelve dollars and fifty cents for the semester. Outrageous. And then I went into a counselor and we kind of put our, you got to take classes, okay. He says, I wanted to take the underwater basket weaving class, but it was full. So what was left? And there was music appreciation. So I thought, well, good, Elvis Presley, get to hear his music, you know, uh, uh, Buck Owens, you know, Little Richard, and that, that'll be all right. We got in there and we had to study back. Uh, uh, Tchaikovsky and Beethoven. And I really, I liked the class, but I can only remember one thing that really stood out. The professor got to one end of the class, and he wanted to explain what a cadence was. And he, and he defined it as that musical chord sequence moving toward a harmonic close. And he, and he turned it on, and it was the end of one of these great compositions with, nah, you know, really going wild. And, and he got his hand up here, and he says, now watch, it's going like this. And he walks right out the side door, and he goes out on the lawn. And I, that's the only thing I really remember about that class. But he pointed out, it's the cadence. It's the end of it all. It's the beginning for us, for eternity, when we go be with the Lord. And so we're going uh, to go through a little bit of a kind of a very tiny preview. of a, So uh, this, this is a feeling thing. So you can worship God as he goes. Through. I ask him to turn up the volume. So, as I, I send you off, I send you off uh, now as uh, quadratarians to represent Jesus Christ. Under the loving and eternal protection of our loving God and Savior Jesus Christ, on your way to worship in God's chosen Jerusalem. And I'll see you there. I probably won't recognize you because I'll be looking at one God and worshiping him. But we will be there together. Hey, you're dismissed.